That was some nice one-handed magic you had there, Mark, getting all that together. Our passage this morning picks up the story of Ruth with a conversation between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. It's a conversation that takes place on the side of the road between Moab and Bethlehem. It was a moment of decision. But before we consider Ruth's story, I want us to begin like we did last week by beginning with another story. And it was another story that also took place on the side of the road. There was a man that came up to the teacher when he was passing through town. And the Bible tells us his full name, first, middle, and last. It was rich, young ruler. And he came up to this teacher and he asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so the teacher said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And he says, if you desire eternal life, then keep the commandments. Don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Love your neighbor as yourself. And rich young ruler said, great, I've done all of these things since my youth. Is there anything else? The teacher said, yes. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. It was a moment of decision on the side of the road. But you know the story, the rich young ruler couldn't do it. He could not do what this teacher asked of him, and he walked away sorrowful and grieved, Because great were his possessions. Life was offered to him, but it came at such a great cost. And it's in this moment of decision that the rich young ruler encounters a very age-old question. Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Is it really worth it to follow him when sometimes it feels as though he asks too much of us? And that's not a new question, it's an old question. We see this same question and the same wrestling throughout the Bible. Others who had to wrestle with the cost of being faithful to this God that sometimes, yes, asks so much. We see Elijah in despair on the mountaintop when he feels like he's all alone. We see Jeremiah struggling and wrestling when he watches the kingdom crumble around him. We see John the Baptist in prison, wondering if Jesus is even real. It seems as though doubt and despair are woven into the fabric of faith. Which means, if they had to wrestle, and it's probably safe to assume that we will too. Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? And not just when it's easy, but when it's hard. When he takes what you don't want to give when he withholds the very thing that you want to have. Jesus may not come to you and ask you to sell everything that you have. He'll ask you in other ways. Is it worth it to follow him when he takes your health? When he asks for your job or your career? When he takes your loved ones by death or by betrayal? When life gets hard and difficult, when it brings you depression and despair, when the waters of your marriage or your parenting get rough. The question comes to us all. Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? And in this story, the rich young ruler received the invitation to life. 
but he could only hear it as loss. It required too much of him. He needed the story of Ruth. Because when she was on the side of the road, she had absolutely nothing to her name. The very situation that the rich young ruler feared. But for Ruth, that's when her faith began. And so, what could this rich young ruler have learned from her story? What could we learn from her story? Well, in our passage this morning, we find three women on the side of the road, three weeping widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. So let me catch you up on their tragedy real quick. Naomi and her husband Elimelech took their two sons, Malin and Kilian, to the foreign nation of Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. And while they were there, the two sons, Malin and Kilian, married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. One big happy family. But then tragedy strikes. Naomi lost her husband, Elimelech. Ruth lost her husband, Malin. Orpah lost her husband, Kilian. Life had utterly fallen apart. And what do they have? They have nothing but hunger and heartache. And they hear that the years, that 10 years, the famine, that after 10 years, the famine is finally ended. And so with nothing but each other, they begin the journey to Bethlehem. But halfway there, Naomi just stops on the side of the road. She throws her hands up and she says, she says, look, I can't do this. Ruth, Orpah, go back home to your mothers. You're still young. Go and be married, because I have nothing. I have no husband to care for you. I have no sons to give you. Go and be married. I release you, and I pray that God provides for you. But leave me. Leave while you still have a chance to make a life for yourself. Can you imagine what it was like to hear those words? The heartbreak in those words. And it was a heartbreak that became reality because Orpah got up and in her tears she kisses Naomi and she says goodbye. And then she leaves and she goes back the way they came. But then Naomi turns to Ruth and she says, you too, go, go home. But listen to what Ruth says. She says, no, I will not leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And may the Lord kill me if anything but death parts me from you. Now can you imagine what it was like to hear those words? What's Ruth saying here? What is she, what is she doing on the surface, yes, she's committing herself and her life to Naomi's good, but more importantly, she's converting. She's converting. This is the very language of conversion. She's using the covenant language of Yahweh who says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Ruth is using these very covenantal words, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Because by virtue of her marriage, she would have converted in practice. 
But it's here in this moment on the side of the road when she had absolutely nothing that she converted in her heart. Your God is my God now. I entrust my story, our story, to him. And what did that decision mean for her? It meant destitution. Because let me define poverty in the ancient world. It's two widowed women with no sons. Ruth's faith began when she had nothing. Despite the poverty and the struggle that she knew would lie ahead. Despite the sorrow and the grief for all that that meant, she didn't turn back. She trusted. It's in that moment she chose to follow this God. And honestly, couldn't the story just end right there and it would be beautiful in its own right? It's already so compelling and so moving. But it doesn't end there because this is just the beginning of what God is doing. Because Ruth's story is not a story about what she gives. Her story is about what she receives. And that story is just beginning. And the first thing we see that she receives in her new life is grain. Because when her and Ruth, or when Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem, they've got nothing but sunshine and lint in their pockets. They have to provide for themselves now. So Ruth, being the younger and the stronger of the two, she asks Naomi if she can go out into the fields to glean and to get grain for food. Because during the harvest in Israel, if you looked out over the fields, you'd see what were called gleaners following behind the harvesters. These gleaners were the poor, the destitute, the sojourner. And they were allowed to walk behind and pick up the leftover grain. They could harvest certain parts of the field that were left so that they would have food. Why? Because God commanded it. This was a law of God. One of his laws in the Torah was that the wealthy landowners had to leave a portion of their fields for the poor and the needy among them. God required and commanded them that they had to give up some of their profits to provide for those that were less fortunate. And so we see Ruth go out into the fields, beginning this new life as a gleaner. Now, if we just pause right there for a second, and we try to connect with this, I want you to consider this situation with spiritual eyes. I want to ask you a question. Do you feel like Ruth? Do you feel as though you live like a gleaner? And what I mean by that is that you feel like you live on the leftovers of another's blessing. So yeah, you profess faith, you believe, but you feel like you live on the margins of the people of God, living off scraps. So you hear others talk about their blessings and their relationship with God, and for a moment it's encouraging to your faith, but then you sigh because their story is not your story. Or you read and you listen to others that seem so blessed with insight and they seem so well fed in their faith and you're encouraged for a moment, but you still feel so hungry. Hungry for more. You hunger for your own story, your own blessing, your own testimony of God's goodness and his favor towards you. This rich young ruler didn't know it, but that's what he was looking for. 
He, didn't com- he did what God commanded, yes, but he still felt a hunger within him. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place. It's why he asked Jesus for more. What must I do to inherit real life because something's missing? And in the end, you feel like he did. You feel like you're asked to give far more than you'll ever be given. And so, yeah, at times it doesn't feel like following Jesus is worth it. Whenever you already feel like you receive so little in return. And if that's you, then I would just simply say this. That hunger is the best part of you. Because you hunger for something that this world cannot give. That hunger is God drawing you unto himself. And that hunger that Ruth felt was drawing her unto him. Because see Ruth in this moment. See her. Because her journey began with a hunger too. A literal hunger that drove her out into the fields. But in reality, it was that hunger that was ultimately bringing her into her story of redemption. And so, my dear friend, where might your hunger take you? Well, where did Ruth's hunger take her? Well, at the end of the first day of gleaning, Ruth came home with a mother load of grain. No pun intended. She brought home an ephah, which was about 30 pounds of grain. That's a lot. So Ruth see, or Naomi sees that, and she's like, where did you glean today? Like, did you just take a bag of grain? Because that's not, that's not how gleaning works. But Ruth says no. She tells her that it was from the fields of a man named Boaz. It was a gift from him. Because as Ruth is working in the fields, Boaz is the landowner. And so he comes along to check on his fields. And he notices her. He sees the new girl in town. And he asked his foreman who she was. And his foreman said, well, that's Ruth the Moabite. She's a foreign woman. She asked to glean. And so she's worked hard all day. So Boaz goes to Ruth. And did you see how extraordinarily kind to her he was? He tells her, don't glean in any other field. Only mine. And he says, I want you to stay close with the women of my family. And I've told my men not to touch you, not to harm you, and not to restrain you. My field is yours. And then he tells her to get water from his own vessels. In short, he's extraordinarily kind to Ruth. So much so that she says, why are you doing this for me? A foreign woman. And Boaz says, it's because I've heard of you. I've heard of your story. I've heard of what you did for your mother-in-law and all that you gave up and leaving behind your land, your family, and your people so that you could be a part of our people. So Ruth, may the Lord repay you for all that you've done. May he shelter you in his wings. Boaz has incredible compassion upon Ruth. And to top it all off, Boaz invited her to come and sit at his table, to sit with his family, to eat his food, and then he sends her home with grain from his own stock. Here's a man who goes above and beyond the requirements of the law to love his neighbor, and not just any neighbor, but a Moabite, a sworn enemy of Israel, and a woman, a foreign woman. 
And he shows Ruth what the Bible calls hesed love, which is a covenantal, committed love. It's the type of love that God shows his people. Why would Boaz do that? We must remember who Boaz is. Perhaps he shows this kind of love because he knows that he exists because of the very kind of covenantal love and compassion that he's displaying towards Ruth. Boaz is like his daddy, Salmon, who loved his mother, a foreign woman named Rahab. He knows there's a place in this kingdom for foreign women. So when Naomi hears about Boaz, the wheels start turning. Because when she learns that Ruth came into the field of Boaz, she realizes that Boaz is a relative, which means that he could be what was called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer comes from Leviticus 25. And similar to what we saw with Judah and Tamar in the Leverate law, the kinsman redeemer laws were there to protect the family. Because what were the two most important possessions in ancient Israel. It was family and land. And the Leverate Law maintained the family line in the events of death, and the Kinsman Redeemer Laws maintained the family land in the event that it was lost. And so a wealthy relative could come along and be a Kinsman Redeemer and purchase the land of their relatives to keep it in the family. They could buy it back and they could redeem it for them. So that's what Naomi's thinking. The wheels start turning for Naomi, and she devises a plan. And it's a plan to hit two birds with one stone. To marry off Ruth and give her an heir, but also to regain the land that they lost when the family left from Moab ten years before. And this is where things get interesting and why I am so glad the story doesn't end in chapter one. Because here's the plan. Naomi tells Ruth to wash and anoint herself and put on her cloak to wait until night after Boaz had finished eating and drinking and then he goes to bed on the threshing floor where they stored the grain and he'd sleep there during the harvest to protect it from robbers. And then once he's asleep, Ruth is to sneak in, uncover his feet, Lay down next to him, and then she says, do whatever he tells you. That's the plan. Oh, yes, I have your attention now. (laughs) So just to paraphrase, Naomi says, Ruth, I want you to put on your going out clothes. I want you to wait until dark, and then sneak into his room, pull back the covers, and here, take this little mixtape and hit play. Roxanne will start gently playing in the background. And then when he wakes up, do what he says. Now, this is exactly what it looks like. You can't escape the reality of this scene. It's highly suggestive. It's highly euphemistic. It's using loaded language with all sorts of innuendo and erotic overtones. The text is begging you to see it that way. You can't avoid it. Naomi is not sending Ruth to a prayer and praise night. 
In effect, she is telling Ruth to put her best foot forward and to make herself available. In fact, it's recognizing that that's really the only way that we can see the beauty of the story. So what does Ruth do? She gets ready. She sneaks across town in the middle of the night. She walks in, she pulls back the covers, and she makes herself available. But not in the way that Naomi had suggested. Boaz wakes up and he says, who are you? text says that he was shaking like a leaf. I bet he was. He says, who are you? And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant and be my redeemer. Now, any ancient Israelite would know exactly what she just said. So let me put it in our language. Boaz, will you marry me? Boaz, will you have me to be your wife and redeem my family? She proposes marriage. And Boaz knows exactly what's happening. He's aware of their desperation. He's aware that Naomi sent Ruth. He knows exactly what he's being asked to do. And he knows exactly what's being offered to him in the moment. But it's Ruth's requests that moves him so much. What's he say? He says, this kindness that you have shown me is even more extraordinary than the first. And what he means is that what she's doing in this moment is even better than when she committed herself to Naomi and to God. Because here is Ruth at her own expense seeking to provide for her family. But Boaz is moved in particular by the way she's going about seeking that shelter and that provision. Because he says something that's so touching. He says, you could have had any of the other young men. You could have gone after them and they would have had you and they would have provided for you. He's expressing his humility. He's expressing that he doesn't think very highly of himself. He's not a young man anymore. He's a little older, a little grayer, a little less desirable. There's so many other options that she could have had, but he is saying that she has chosen the least of these. She could have started, she didn't try to start a new life with a new family. What is she doing? She is choosing to redeem and honor the family she had and seek shelter and security through the very avenue that God provided. Boaz is moved by her faith and what that cost her. He's moved by her desire to seek shelter under the provision of God's wings. So what does Boaz do? Well, it's here that we see his integrity. First, he comforts her and he tells her not to be afraid. Why? She's probably scared to death. Scared to death of what he might do. But then he tells her, yes, I will be your redeemer. But... There's actually another relative that has first rights before me. But he says, even then, he says that he will take care of it. He will redeem her. He will seek her redemption. And he does three things. He protects her and he allows her to stay with him so that she doesn't have to go home in the middle of the night. He protects her reputation. He protects her safety and her dignity. 
Then he provides for Ruth and Naomi by giving her more grain as a token of his commitment and his devotion to them. And it's a sign of his promise because he promises her that as the Lord lives, he will seek her redemption. All she has to do is trust him. So the next day, Boaz makes good on his promise. He goes to the city gate where this business would have to take place. And when the man comes along that Boaz was looking for, he called to him and asked him to sit down. The Bible doesn't actually give us his name. The equivalent of what the Bible uses is they call him so-and-so. Because perhaps he's one that's not, whose name isn't worth remembering. You might remember him or think of him as one who is like a rich, young ruler. And so Boaz sees him, waits for this man to come, and he invites this man to come and follow the commands of the Lord. Boaz, Boaz tells him of his opportunity to buy back the land for Naomi and redeem it for her. There's actually a lot of complexity to this situation, but in essence, it looks like this. The man had the opportunity to buy this land, and it would increase his estate. It would enlarge his portfolio. Because Naomi had no sons, which means he didn't have to worry about handing it over in the future. Which means that it was his. According to the law, it's his if he wants it, and all of its profit. He can develop the land, he can use it as an investment, and make more money. So, of course, he sees a great deal. He's a businessman. So he says, of course, where do I sign? But then Boaz gives him the opportunity of a lifetime. It's an opportunity to not just follow a law, but to display and experience hesed, covenantal love. To go above and beyond the requirements of the law. Boaz says there's one more thing. You can marry Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And you can redeem this family to the fullest extent. And that changes the game. Because now this little rich young ruler sees things differently. Now he sees the commitment, the sacrifice, and the responsibility of what he's being asked to do. He's being asked to marry Ruth. And if he did marry Ruth and she had a son, then all of the land and all of the profit from that land would revert to that son. And this man would no longer own it. He did the math and it didn't add up. This opportunity of a lifetime, he could only hear it as loss. He was willing to follow the law to a certain point, as, he, as long as he got something out of it. But whenever he started seeing sacrifice, he walked away. When it was sacrificial and saw that it cost him something, he said no. And he walks away. And then Boaz says, in the presence of all of the elders and all of the people, he says, then I will redeem her. And all of the elders and all of the witnesses respond and they say, yes, we are witnesses. And may this Moabite woman build up the house of Israel. May your son, your house, be like Perez, who was born to Tamar and Judah. And then Boaz goes to find his bride. And then, well, it's baby time. The Lord gave Ruth conception. She bore a son, 
hunky little bubba named Obed. And Obed would grow old and watch his grandson become a mighty king. A king who would build the house of Israel. A king named David. So let's get back to our friend, the rich young ruler, on the side of the road that walked away from Jesus. When he had the opportunity of a lifetime, yet he walked away sad and sorrowful, wrestling with the question, is it really worth it to follow this Jesus when it feels like he commands and asks too much? Well, what would Ruth say? To what does her story testify? Ruth would say, apart from God's law, I have no good. It was because of his commands that he provided for me over and over again. It was because of his commands that he showed me his goodness. And you might think, how so? Well, think about her story. It's one where the law of God, his very commands, continued to provide for her. It was through God's provision in the gleaning laws that he provided her food. It was through the kinsman redeemer laws that God restored her family and her inheritance. It was through the commands to love your neighbor as yourself that God gave her a husband and a child. It was through the commands of God that she came to know his goodness. To this rich young ruler, her story says, no, don't turn back. Don't walk away. When I had nothing, that's when I found everything. You can follow his commands. You can do what he asks even when it's hard. Because it's through his commands that I came to know his hesed, covenantal love for me. Rich young ruler, that is the invitation before you. Don't walk away. Now to the skeptic in the room, you may think, well, that's easy for Ruth to say. In the end, she ended up with a husband. And God gave her a baby. And you're right, he did. But he gave you a better one. He gave you a baby that would become this teacher, this rabbi, this king. The same one that asked so much of this rich young ruler. But before Jesus ever asked him to give up his possessions, what does the Bible say happened? It says Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. He loved him. And then he said, sell everything you have and come, follow me. He had the opportunity of a lifetime. The opportunity to be willing to empty his hands and know the hesed love behind that command. And Ruth's story is one that testifies that that love does not come to him empty-handed. Nor does that love come to you empty-handed. It just asks for a willingness to come and follow. It's in this Advent season that you're given an invitation. It's the same invitation we see with Naomi, who at the end of the book of Ruth, we find her holding this little Obed in her lap, just taking him in. This is the same woman who before said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter, because the Lord has dealt so bitterly with me. He has required too much of me. 
But that little Bubba told her a different story. That God does not call her bitter. He calls her beloved. And that's the Advent invitation set before you. To start at square one. By coming to another baby. To behold him. And realize that it's in him that you find the Hesed covenantal love of God for you. It's there you find everything when you have nothing. Ruth's story is one in which God displayed his love for her by giving her a baby. But your story is one where God gives you the baby that is Hesed, covenantal love. And that baby communicates the most fundamental fact of your existence in flesh and blood. I am the God that gives you myself. Now will you give yourself to me? Will you come and follow? Will you listen to my words? Will you let me lead you and guide you? Will you come and follow? And come and know he who is unending, eternal, immeasurable, hesed love. For he does not call you bitter. He calls you his beloved. Let's pray.